Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. Far Realms Radio. Today we are talking about running your first game as a DM. Episode eight is tips that we can give you, advice that we've ha- we have might have for you, things that we've seen that will hopefully empower you to run your first game, and then run your second game, and then run your third game, and then run your fiftieth game. Yeah, we're learning to be better DMs all the time. So join us on this journey. So. Tell me about the first time that comes to your mind when you ran the the first game you ever ran. How did it go? Oh, like, what was it like? Where? How old were you when you did it? Uh, the first game I ever ran, I think I was eleven. Wow! Oh, you were young when you yeah, ran the first. Yeah, time. I had started playing when I was ten. Uh, we had we had books when I was eight, but I had no idea it was a game until about the time I was ten. Huh. Uh, just flipping through AD and D monster manuals and then going out in the backyard and. Did your dad buy the books? Or no, like... my friend's sister had it, of course, uh, right? It's always your, like, friend's sibling who's older and your cool. Your friend's sister. What a cool... She was, like, the 80s, I guess. Right? Cool yeah. girl. Yeah, nice. she was apparently cool. <laughs> and we were essentially using it for kid LARP fuel. You know, you look yeah. at the monsters, and then you go out in the backyard and fight them with your plastic sword. Right, play pretend. Yeah, of course. Uh, so... I was the one who forced my neighborhood friends to play this game. I quickly realized if I didn't run it, there would be no game to play. So... I bought the books and I got my buddies into the dining room and <laughs> we played a very uh, kick in the door style type of play featuring <laughs> a lot of uh, dungeons and random arena battles simply for the sake of battling. Probably it was like a map or something. Of course, yeah, arena. right, exactly. We had like it's one map. This is the arena we map. Had one of the, we had one of the, you know, the play mats that you would draw on in a race, of course. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of really stupid uh, PvP between my only two party members <laughs> who were constantly trying to kill each other. It was a great time. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think my lack of knowledge and experience forced me to keep things simple, and I think that's part of what didn't turn us off to the game right away. Yeah. Yeah, I I think my first experience running a game was also I was very young. I was 13. And I think it was basically me and a few buddies were sitting around in one of our basements, and they were a little older than me. They were 15. And they had run the prior module, one of them. He used the guy who had the Dungeon Master's Guide. And the of the three or four of us, depending upon which night it was, uh, he thought that despite me being the youngest and newest of the group, that I was the best to run the next, whatever. And I thought that this was just him trying to get me to take over the game so that he could play the game. And... But I was new to the group, so okay, sure, fine, you know. Uh, so I went and bought uh, an adventure. It was a second edition adventure, and it was, um, I, I mean, it was actually pretty accessible, I guess, for a, a new DM. It was not the first adventure I would ever throw at 
anybody to run. But then again, I don't know what would be, you know, it, it definitely colored my thinking about the game henceforth forever. It was uh, the gates of Firestorm Peak by Bruce Cordell in, in second edition. And it was like designed for fifth level characters, minimum fifth to seventh level characters. And the only reason I think that I picked that one because that was the a the one that was available happened to be close enough to our characters. We were fourth level at the time. I was like, oh, we can make it work. We got to figure out how we're going to get a level sometime between now and then. And uh, and I ran it, and you know, I've it did a good enough job to explaining how things worked, I guess, and how you how you could run it. Um, it it definitely didn't prepare me for the kinds of things that players can do sometimes. I don't think anything can prepare you for that. <laughs> that's that's part of the game. Yeah, it's uh. Uh, it's one of the core parts of it, but that so both of us we were both very young when we encountered the game, you know, and and started running a game very early. But a lot of people in our lives now are new to the game and are adults, you know. And I think that arguably that that while the target market of teenagers has certainly not shrunk any in the time since the eighties when you and I got involved in this, it's only increased to adults, right? Which is a massive, huge market. I mean, there's an explosion in the amount of players. And the thing to remember is most people who play D&D are players, not DMs. DMs are a smaller portion of it. Um, but, you know, getting more people to DM is really the biggest tradition, I think, that it's important to push forward with. Because we have so many people now who come to the game from, you know, older. They've seen it on streaming and things like that. And Running a game can be this kind of scary thing, especially, you know, you, you hear people talk about the Matt Mercer effect and all this nonsense. There's always been really good DMs out there that make you nervous to run your own game. <laughs> yeah. Like, anytime you go and you saw that when you were younger, it doesn't have to be someone on streaming. Like, you'll see someone run a game and you will, your jaw will drop and you'll be like, I don't know if I can do anything wow, like that. Wow, that person looks really good. How did they learn to do those things? Right? And it's hard to learn. There's so much to uh, DMing that you never get told. And there are many, many different ways of DMing too, right? There are a bajillion different styles depending upon people and the style of game and the group who shows up, you know, so... I mean, half of it depends on that social layer, really, right? Right. right. Like, well, so what do you think for somebody today, you know, maybe if they're like wondering, do I want to try to DM or I don't know, it's kind of intimidating, you know, and, and we'll talk about like the structures of it, but... How would they, what are some of the things maybe that would make them leap over that choice to be like, yeah, I do want to run my first session. I want to try the DM bit. I want to, you know. I know the first thing is if you're not running it, there's no game. That's what got me DMing. (laughs) That's true. That's what's kept me DMing over so many years too. I mean, at first, you know, I was one of those forever DMs and I was like, I want a character. Why won't someone else run this? (laughs) And so I really was always excited when I could play at my friend's house. But the game wasn't going to happen if you weren't Exactly. If I was playing neighborhood game, you know, with my brother and my friends, like if I didn't run it, there was no game. And that meant playing like once a month, which was not sufficient. So this might look like an email thread today, I guess, which is how we coordinate our games. I imagine a lot of people do out there. And it's like, oh, you know, we're going to try and get together. Oh, so-and-so can't make it. Well, there's still like four of us, even though we're down two. Uh, hmm. Well, why don't we get together and we'll figure something out. And then people show up and uh, somebody's like, well, I'll run a game. Why not? Right. I I think part of it really comes down to, first of all, the people that you're playing with. You know, if you can, if you're running your first game, try to play with people that you either know or you've played games with before. That will take out so much of that social pressure and make you more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, this might be anything ranging from like coworkers that you want a team activity with to like your buddies on a Saturday afternoon 
which is what was when I was a teenager, right? Right, like, and there's enough social pressure within the game without adding more onto the the real like meat space layer. With on strangers, top. it's hard exactly. with strangers. You have to be vulnerable usually to role play really well, or it's just, more you know, strict social there's, rules. There's an exchange there. Yeah. So I think looking for a place that you're familiar with, whether it's your local game store or your friend's house, and people that you're comfortable with is mm-hmm. a big, big thing. Especially, uh, you know, if you're going to touch on more sensitive topics or you're dealing with people different than yourself. You need to be kind of sensitive to that as well. Yeah, I think like, I, I often say this, right? Like it's it's about the table. You know, so much of the game matters depending on who shows up at the table. And that, as the DM, part of that is your responsibility to help, I think, pick that. So that's a, actually, in my mind, a powerful responsibility and a good one to have, especially at your first time, because you get to decide what game you want to run. You know, like if you're going to, I want to run it, you know, well, obviously make it comfortable for yourself. Pick some yeah, people that pick you Pick something that you want to run. Right. And with common interest that people, you know, they, they understand they can hook into it and people that yeah. you enjoy their company because you're, you're going to be hanging out with them for hours at a time. You're playing a game too. So your fun matters, you know, and I think I, I wouldn't recommend doing it with total strangers. No, I would not run my first game with total strangers if I could avoid it. Uh, you could do it. It just it's so much easier with when it's people that you know because you can mm-hmm. essentially skip a step and there's a little bit more inherent trust built already, which right. is really helpful. Yeah, like common communication, especially when you're do, when you're nervous and you're doing something new. DMing is really scary for the first time. It's it's thankfully I had a large break before I came back to the hobby, and it's, I, it's scary for every time. Just well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I always have the anxiety, but. It was kind of nice. The one nice thing about being away for the hobby for many years and not running a game is when I came back, I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty tough. Mm. I used to be pretty used to this, and I didn't have this level of anxiety. And so I had to kind of build that back up a little bit, especially since I was new to 5th edition. You know, I was mm-hmm. thinking in a 3-5 mindset for a long time. So, I mean, yeah, and it, I think it does take it does take attention, right? Yeah, you know? totally. It, it, and one of the best things about running a game with people that you know is it's going to be easier to just talk to them about this and straight up level with them and be like, hey, uh, I really want to try running a game so I can become a good GM and run some awesome adventures for us, but I don't, I've never done it before. I'm going to make a couple mistakes. Are you cool just like hanging through that with me so I can become better at, at this thing I want to do? Right. Or even helping me out, you know, like the... The playing of the game is a collaborative exercise, which is why the people matter so much. And that means that it's not also the DM, especially a first-timer's responsibility to have all of the rules down, you know? No, no, no. Because the thing is, when you run, in my opinion, your very first game, the experience that you have running your very first game is not dissimilar from the experience you get from running or playing a new game, a different both group or especially group and system you know, if you play other RPGs. So it's a useful exercise to think about and go through. Do a little prep for it. Exactly. And the, 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 the thing that is nice is as long as your players aren't like total assholes, telling them these things like will actually take pressure off of you when they inevitably happen because you're going to make mistakes in your first session. And if your players kind of know and can help watch out for that, especially the more experienced ones, they yeah. can kind of have your back and kind of help you out whether you forget a rule or you right. need someone to look up a spell um, delegate, are, delegate, it, absolutely. Exactly. To other Maybe, you know, someone helps running initiative for you. I love having people do that in games so I can focus on other things. And so, you know, if you have those experienced players, like if they're players worth having in your group, they're going to help you out and kind of like every true DM wants to see other people step behind the table and start right. DMing. It's, it's part of our tradition in the game. The more ownership everybody has over the game, the better time. Everybody Plus that has. means you could have a character and you don't have to DM. Right. Sometimes that's nice. Right. Um, we do a game, we both run games that we both also play in. 
So neither of us is stuck in the forever DM track. Right. And it's not, I honestly prefer DMing now more than having a character, but it's such a good reminder to be a PC and see things from the other perspective because you're like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't like that. I need to work I on really, that in my I, own game. I really, rem- yes, I, and I really, I really it reminds me how different of a game they are. It's a, it's a totally, it's like two different experiences. Right, right. Um, I think yeah. it's really helpful to do both. You, you play as the player, yes, definitely. You know, and you get to see like the how the collaborative problem solving works and how you exchange spotlight. Really, is what it boils down yeah. to. And time and resource. And then there's the DM. Of course, you're the one who gets to the, make it work for everybody so you also get to point the spotlight at very at various places but that means that you very seldom own it yourself so it, i think part of it is like you have to know not being a dm is not for everybody you know but you're listening to this podcast probably because in some part of your mind is well what if i decide what would it take you know maybe i want to come to the other side of the table it's not the dark side it's the prismatic side so the other thing I think that's important to kind of think about when you're running your first game is to take care of those real life logistics that kind of might throw a wrench into your plan and add extra stress or chaos. So things like having enough pencils or dice or a battle map or ordering food and kind of figuring out how you're going to totally. do that because you're going to need all of your focus for this first game. It's going to be overwhelming even with all of your focus and even with prep. Um, there's a, the real key part of making any of the sessions, including the first one, maybe especially the first one work is the flow of the game, right? So a lot of these normal things that you have to tackle every single time, food is a really big one and it's very disruptive. What does everybody want? Can you all agree on what kind of pizza? You'd think the answer would be easy, but no, never. It's never, that's like a classically it's, archetypally hard choice it, it is easier than scheduling the game and getting people to show up yeah, right i mean maybe <laughs> maybe free pizza will also help that i mean i think uh making it regular is a is an easy thing to do um if you choose like here's a here's your regular cadence and then you can do the same thing with food and also all the materials right you move those things out of the way you help make them just be handled logistics wise then the game can really focus oh, the players can really focus on the game itself right they don't have to think about all this other stuff and get their involved feathers ruffled and then settle back down again and get back in the game exactly it really does kind of break up the action there uh, so once you kind of look at those kind of that social layer those real world logistics Get those out of the way. Make sure you're feeling comfortable with that so you're not feeling out of your element. Uh, and you're looking at the game itself. Uh, in, in a broad sense, I think keeping it simple and not trying to get too fancy on your first outing as a DM is really important. Yeah, I mean, you you broke this down quite well, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of not fancy. I, like This is a thing I mentioned before uh, that I really, I, I think, adhere to is some improv advice and and uh, it applied specifically to role players it's you know do the obvious thing nine times out of ten it will be obvious and the tenth time it'll be brilliant because that's just how it works you know you you what's obvious to you is not obvious to other people and they'll find it really interesting so you know really not going whole kit and caboodle maybe even buying an adventure off the shelf you know i mean yeah we'll get to the more specifics after talking about these kind of ideas in a broad term for sure i'm definitely on board with that uh, but the thing to think about is it's it's your first time doing something. You're probably not going to be amazing off it right at the bat, especially because GMing is a mix of different skill sets. You might find that there's certain parts that you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually pretty good at this part or I'm good at that. But then you will also find, wow, I'm really struggling with this. I don't have a lot of experience here or this is difficult. Like for me, like maps and connecting plot threads and building a, a living, breathing world, 
easy. No problem. I mm-hmm. can do that. No problem. Mm-hmm. For me, the harder part is taking an NPC and turning them into a person mm-hmm. and like getting the accent in there or giving that little bit of quip to them that kind of brings them alive. I, I struggle a little bit more with like, okay, who the hell is this guy? How can I communicate that to my players through role play? Right. I mean, and this is why we said earlier that there are the different styles everybody has, right? So I guess one of the things about the, being the DM is to know yourself a little bit what you look for, what you like and what you think you're good at and lean into those, follow your gut, right? So by the inverse, and this is why I think it's a nice balance being in each other's games, those are the areas that I'm strong, you know, like, oh yeah, sliding into a character. Oh yeah. And understanding how they sound and how they think. And I've how watched they... you go back and forth between six characters with different accents and amazing. This is the benefit of a bard, bard yeah. degree. And usually that's like <laughs> one of the, hey, don't do this. And I'm like, no, let him do it. It's great. Yeah, it works. Uh, I, I, but I think that the by the, the same token, the plotting out all of the detailed machinations of a simulation which I've had DMs do that really well in the past. That's not an area of my expertise, right? You know, it, it always, it focuses on what the narrative needs to be in that next moment. So, you know, if you're going to try it, you have to know some sense of what kind of game you're going to run. And I think part of like that knowing yourself is because from a high level, you are selling other players on playing your game. It's like you have a board game. You're like, hey, do you want to play Eldritch Horror with me? There's some buy-in you have to get from them. Here's what it's going to, here's what the game looks like. I'm like, I don't know. It's a lot of pieces. I don't know. How long does it take? Oh, it takes four hours. Well, I do like long board games, so I don't know. You know, like you have to. So in this case, I like to think of it like a board game or a card game. You you're the pitcher. You're like having to. Yeah, you got to get buy-in. Yeah, to use a sports analogy, I like. You should probably like learn to dribble before you start like trying to dunk and shoot three pointers and do crazy fake outs. Don't hate us for using a sports analogy, nerds. These two are not <laughs> incompatible. We both want you to know that sports and nerdiness go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. And I know sports ball is not popular for many of you, but it's okay. Don't hate us. It's kind of like my analogy I like to use is. It's a good analogy. The other sports analogy I like to use is watching someone else GM or even being in a game with them. It's kind of like watching someone else play sports, right? Just because you've seen someone do it doesn't mean you have firsthand experience. And we've all watched sports with people who talk like, oh, they couldn't do that. I could do that. Like every time you watch the Olympics and there's someone on the gymnast rings, there's some guy saying, oh, yeah, I could do that. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, bud. I'll believe that when I see it. But (laughs) you may think, oh, I've seen this. I know how this works. And then you get to the other side of the table and you're like, okay, I don't know how any of this works. This is very different experience. Um, so I think what's really important there for yourself to start to get a little more specific when I say keep it simple or learn to dribble before you start dunking is the boundaries and limitations on choice are going to make it easier for you. Um, the problem here is you don't want your players to feel like you're restricting their freedoms too much. So you have to approach it and get their buy-in through the kind of the right angle. And in this case, what you're really offering them is this delayed gratification of, hey, I'm kind of a newbie right now, um, but in the future, I'm going to get really good and I can run these awesome games that have all the kind of the things that you want in them and really mm-hmm. make them games that you're going to have fun with. But for now, I, I need to add these extra limitations so that I can build those skills and kind of really understand how to do that for you. Um, so, and, you know, that's kind of the payoff that they're accepting for or the payoff that they're expecting in return for accepting all these like limitations that you're going to have to put on into this first game, just so you can keep a handle on it and not let it get away from you. Yeah. I mean, and I would say also to sort of add to that, know that every time you do this, every, just like every time you show up to play a sport or do a performance or any kind of anything, it's different every single time. And that's good both yeah. 
Every time. The time it's bad because it'll be uh, better a different time. You know, it's not going to always be that. And also it's good. good, It's true the time it's good too, because you know, it's not going to always be that good, but that does mean they're going to remember that, you know? So like it's every, know that even every time you show up to do it, it's just not going to be, even if you nail it, like you walk out there the first time and you're like, boom, that was amazing. You you come back the next time and be like, ah. Is okay. I feel like the first couple times you don't know really. You're like, was that was that good? Was it terrible? Yeah. You guys, are you going to come it back? It takes next a week? long time to get a sense for how right. feedback is and in the table. It's, it's hard to say. Prepped isn't always directly related to how well you do. Like I've had games where I prepped a ton and the session felt like shit. Right. And then I've had games where I really didn't have time and it was amazing just right. because that's the way the session went and the energy in the room or whatever. So when we're talking about boundaries and limitations, you know, Skylar mentioned like a. a a uh, module that's already set and written, uh, you know, pre-gen characters. We'll talk about that more in those specifics. Totally. What, what those limitations and boundaries will be. Um, but it's kind of the idea that there's freedom within the box, right? There's freedom within discipline. Um, and it will kind of make the game easier for you by just simply knowing more of the possibilities of what could happen. Yeah, I think, I think that a good place to start for running your first game is to have kind of your headline if this was a news story maybe or like your event description like one sentence like you're on netflix and it's your little blurb underneath the title and it's like party of adventurers dives into a dungeon and beats a dragon or is it uh dystopian science fiction thriller heroes save world headline you know like just whatever it is you know something like that in your mind or two right an anchor punches it that helps you. you understand what the game is you're playing tonight uh, because the players will cue off of you. And good players, and there are many out there, will will help feed that for you, you know? But you, they're looking to you to have that cohesive sense of what the game is for everybody. Uh, and I think that it's helpful to just sort of think about that piece. Definitely. The other thing that I think is really important to is to go in with a realistic mindset. Like, don't expect to go in and be a pro on your first day. This is your first time doing something. Right. You're... You can't expect to be good at something the first time you do it. That's usually not how things go. Like most people will have one or two things in their life. They can say, oh, yeah, I was really good at my first time on this. DMing's not going to work that way. It is a weird mix of specific skill sets. So just accept that you may suck a little bit. It's okay. Mm-hmm. The other people, especially if they've DM, they know mm-hmm. that there may be parts that are a little sucky. Whatever. Just don't. You got to expect that. You got to know that, hey, maybe some of the things I'm going to do are going to suck. And just accepting that it's going to take some pressure off of you. It's going to make it a, like a little bit easier to get into that. I'm not saying it won't still be stressful because your first couple games will probably feel more stressful than they will fun because you're learning new things. And that's how that tends to go. Like as you stick with it, the ratio will often get better. I mean, I'm sure like the first time you rode motorcycles, there was a little more fear and stress in, in the fun there and it shifted over time. Yeah, I mean, as a, as an avid motorcyclist, uh, the very first time I rode a motorcycle, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die, and I thought that way for a long time. Uh, and then eventually, it, it eased off, even on the very first riding. Uh, you know, and that's just how you do something better and 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 get better at it. It's just like any performance; practice makes better, uh, and you learn as you go. And you have to, I think, intrinsically. Uh, but also, I think that. 
the DMG, while it has a lot of good advice, it does not teach you how to run a game. And the player's handbook isn't targeted at you. And the monster manual is full of imagination and maybe the place I would start aside from if I wasn't going to pick a, an adventure off Agreed. the shelf. And I, I really do think that that's the way to go. But really uh, more that uh, when you decide to run the game, whatever, wherever you decide to hook into it, be it or we're going to go hunt this monster who's been rampaging through a town. Um, there are a lot of rules, or or you might have published adventure, whatever. There are a lot of rules that you you could know that the DMG does have that I want to explicitly discourage you from using <laughs> for your first session. And I'm not going to tell you what rules not to use. What I'm going to tell you is n- know the rules that are interesting to you. And if you don't understand a rule, don't use it. That's great advice. Don't worry about it. Honestly, I think trying to refer to the rule book as little as possible when you're kind of doing your first session is not a bad way to go. And we'll kind of talk about the specifics of that. But the thing to understand is that you can't really get better at GMing without GMing. There's no like secret GM playbook. Like I've looked for it. Trust me. The Dungeon Master's Guide, despite the title, until recently, it would rarely give you much aside from tools. For DMing yeah. without telling you what to do with set tools. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say there are a bajillion different disagreeing GM playbooks, and they usually are so specific to whatever that person was playing at that time. Or that it, so generic. Or, that, as to not be, so, not be so helpful, you know? And we like to say that we have some help for GMs, and that's part of why we're doing this podcast. It's one of the big reasons. But also... So we can get better at GMing. The, the important part of it is to, to remember that uh, you, some part of the, this activity is critical thinking. You as the DM have to have that. It's also because our significant others will not let us talk about Dungeons and Dragons all the time. They get really tired of hearing us talk about it to the extent that we do. So we scheduled time to drink beer and talk to you guys instead. Hi. The other thing about those tools <laughs> that's kind of tricky, it's kind of a catch-22, is like, you don't know the value of those tools and how to use them yet when you're flipping through the DMG. Like right. They're just random t- They're truly random tables to you at that point. Right. Like you don't have a context for like, oh my God, I see why this would be so useful. Or like, why is there a system for managing food foraging? I thought this was like dungeon delving or this is, you know, my friend talked to me about this, like a political intrigue game. Right. You're like, there's a lot of rules in here, which I don't think I'll need. Right. Overland travel. Does that really matter? Right. And (laughs) do I, how does that matter for the game? Not in D&D, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But uh, generally, like the thing is you have to be kind of familiar with the system as a whole to really kind of understand the value of its individual pieces, right? Like if you don't know how a motorcycle works, you know, how do you know how important one piece is compared to the other? I'm yeah. sure you can give me a good analogy here. You have to you have to see you have to see it in action, of course. But if you're if you're looking thinking about running the game, I'm almost gonna guarantee that you've been a player in the game before too. Maybe there's if a not, rare amongst you who've seen it and went, Wow, I really want to be the DM. But in, in, which, in case, which case you're awesome. Yeah, you're awesome, but I also want to encourage you to go play a game first. Like if you really want to be the DM, go play one first and then, you know, try. But you know, there's, and maybe I would say that way because there's, there's some, some part of this that's required is a little bit of, I don't even know, it's not quite hubris that I want to call it, but it is definitely something, something, well, we'll come, we'll, we'll talk more about this in a little bit. Blissful arrogance. Yeah. I mean, like (laughs) confidence, it does require confidence. You're going to run the game. You're, you're the referee, right? So you have to wear that hat. This is true. 
having a confidence or passion for the game really does make it a lot easier. And being willing to be fair, right? You know, the the game is so fluid that the kind of the kind of role that this requires is somebody who can look at what is both very abstract in this imaginary world and also how to balance it for all of the other players so it doesn't clearly bias one or the other, especially when, like me, I have a my spouse at the table as well. You know, like it'd be really easy to see giving preferential treatment or working out relationship nits with your spouse <laughs> at the D and D table, right? It just requires management, and that's true of all of your friends, of course. You know, definitely. I mean, you have relationships with most people at the table, probably if you if you know them. Um, so. The thing to remember is really that most of the beginner products you're going to look at, and we'll talk about starter sets and beginner's boxes because they are great tools for running your first game. But the thing to remember is most beginner products are focused on new players. They're usually not focused on new DMs because economically it makes way more sense to target new players than new DMs. Yeah, I mean, players are the ones who'll be clamoring for... They're the ones who buy the books. All of the, who's going to run my game? What class am I going to be? They have all the expansions. They have all the modules. They can get, you know, our plugins, so to speak. It's like equipment. It's your gear. It's your feats. It's your spells. It's your customizable kit. I think actually... If you're curious about DMing and you're one of those who likes to read or explore, and I strongly encourage these behaviors in DMs, there is some part of me that sometimes says that this edition of D&D is not necessarily the best one for diving in as a new player, which is, I think, more why I feel strongly in this edition that starting with a published adventure is a strong, stronger choice. Because in today's world, and this is what is not always true of prior versions of D&D and isn't true of other role-playing games in today's world. Today's world has a bunch of different really good, accessible RPGs that are D&D-like, cousins of D&D, similar, better layout, different whatever, that don't have the constraints of Wizards and Hasbro and a big marketing, all of this, you know. I think uh, Dungeon World is a great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, of course, Paizo, which has a bunch of expats from Wizards, has their (laughs) own with Pathfinder, and now Pathfinder 2. We'll see how that is this year at Gen Con. But, But... this is not me here telling you don't play Dungeons and Dragons as your first session. Definitely do, but it's maybe more me saying know the game, the type of game you're playing, and cross-reference. Pick the right game and know play the, it with the right people. Know the difference between chess and checkers, and why people who play chess hate checkers, and why people who play checkers don't care. You know, like they're they're useful to inform each other, and then know the difference between Chinese checkers and why you will lose to me. I probably would. I have to agree. Yeah, if you, if you feel like another game is is the place to start as a game master, yeah, don't be afraid to try that, and then kind of you know break break that ice and move over to D and D from there. Because I will say, while Five E is probably one of the more accessible editions they've ever come out with, the most accessible, the, I think, the most. It, it the <laughs> GMing has always been kind of been this like, all right, uh, God, here's my notes, kid. Like you can figure this out, right? right. All right, see ya. Right. Like most of the. Adventure modules almost just read like someone else's campaign notes without much formatting or organization. I think it's important to keep in mind that you're fending for yourself most of the time as a DM. And one of the things that I like to do very often is, both as as a longtime DM, but also I think think this is a really great, great idea for new players. Get whatever RPG accessories you can get your hands on. And steal from them and pull them into your D&D game. Don't be afraid to steal ideas. So if you're a nerd and you're into Warhammer 40k, let's say, and you happen to have a novel book that has like a, uh, an interesting story that you enjoy, or maybe it's from the Warhammer 40k role-playing game and you found the plot interesting, but you don't have the role, you don't have the friend group that's interested in 40k, 
or the Warhammer 40k books you'd need, but you do have D&D or enough amongst your group, you could play that. Run the game and steal the story. You know, take the content and use it for yourself. The structure whole hog or uh, a mechanic that you like in another game, you know, that uh, has to do with maybe superhero powers or whatever it looks like. D&D, especially this edition, is so, it's very accessible, but that's also for homebrewing. That's also for hacking it's on the rules system. very easy to design for. However, I would say... Probably don't do that in your first game. Let's talk about the specifics of that. <laughs> I mean, I think if, if that's what it takes to hook you into it. I mean, if that's what it takes, yes. Go for it. But you're biting off, you know, more that you got to chew there with but, that. But I, this is why I say I definitely push people strongly toward using published I content. Agree. Because I agree. the less work you have to do, the more fun you can focus on. So and let's this talk, is, a, talk about controlling your controllables. That's what I like to kind of call this. Like okay, great. Yeah. Creating this box for your first game or these these boundaries. Um. I think the best piece of advice here is do not sit down and start a long-term campaign. Oh, definitely don't. Don't do that on your first time. No. Maybe just rethink that until you have a a really good, you know, feeling about it. I understand where you're coming from because you're like, I'm going to make this the greatest campaign ever and it's going to run for years and all my friends will love it. I, we st- you'll still do that later on every, with every campaign you design. You'll have that little dream in your head. Um, however, I, it's it's so much better to establish like a set limit of sessions through which you're going to run your first game. Start with the end in it, sight. It's not. It's gonna take more than one session unless you're doing a one shot. You know uh, exactly where you're gonna go. You know, like know know where you want to end this. Right. Exactly. Make sure there's kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel there. Uh, I think between one and five sessions is usually the place to go. My my bookmark is three. Yeah, three is kind of the sweet spot, I think, for sure, if you can get it done. Sometimes, you know, you may have to, like, players do something ridiculous. It does, takes longer than you think. That will yeah, always happen. Right, right. And you add an extra session in there to wrap it up. Whatever. Somebody was sick or there was a break exactly. or the fight took too long or whatever. But doing this is really good because... One, it's going to take the pressure off of you when you make those mistakes uh, and things don't work out the way you wanted to. And then those mistakes will not come back to haunt you for an entire campaign, which you do not want. Hmm. Um, The other reason is your players are going to be so much more willing to put up with said mistakes if they know there's the light at the end of the tunnel. They're like, especially your experienced players, they may grumble, but they know, okay, I only have to deal with this for two more sessions Hmm. and then we can get into something different or better or whatever. Um, I think the other thing that's nice about having a shorter limited time is to remember that players always get through less content than you think you do. You know, they may skip things that you've designed and they may jump ahead in terms of what you had planned order wise, but they, a, they will usually get through less content than you expect because they will spend always. time arguing or shopping. There was a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, thanks. I knew that was going to come back to bite me. Uh, there, there was a rule of thumb that came about in 3.5, I think. It might have been third edition. It was in the, that time frame that talked about, it had both the progression, I think it was 3.5. It had both the progression of how characters advanced you know how many experience points you need from level level and how many encounters that broke down to mm-hmm. and then uh that meant okay so i think in third edition it was like four encounters every level and that meant that you could design your encounters a certain way blah blah blah, blah. the math you don't need to worry about for this purpose but what shook out of that that line of thinking was that for running a specific time slot game like at a convention game or any other kind of game then You'd have, let's say, one encounter every 45 minutes for your four-hour game, and you would have three and a half encounters, which the math, of course, doesn't quite add up because there's squishy time in between. So, you know, planning, what I took away from that was like, all right, you get basically one encounter an hour. 
for you, whatever your time slot is. You'll find a different is. rate works for different groups. Right. Depending upon also level of experience of the player, you know, like Definitely. if they know, if you have a group of experienced players that you are lucky enough to be running for your first time and they know how to chew through an encounter, you can get through a whole bunch. You'll get through a little faster. But also they may just spend the time just shooting the shit at the table and talking about all kinds of things that are not relevant to what's going on right now. Of course. And it comes the with the territory. Time just goes by, but, you know, so don't, yeah, I would say like have some idea of no more than one encounter per hour, right? You're not going to get done. Yeah. You're not going to get there. Probably won't. And it, it, the nice thing is this shorter time frame of kind of these set limit of sessions will really kind of prevent you from overcomplicating the narrative, trying to get too creative with things, because you will have a lot of good ideas as you're going through. Like, oh my God, what if I did this or that or this? Mm -hmm. And a lot of new DMs are kind of afraid to implement them right away or override something that's pre-made, and that's fine. Eventually, you'll get to the point where you don't care and you will. Um, but having knowing you're like, I got to wrap this up in two sessions will kind of help you from trying to throw in biting off more than you can chew, really, in terms of time that you have with your players. Indeed. Um, I think the other thing that will save you a lot of time and headaches is, and some people will really disagree with me here probably, I think you should stick to pre-generated characters or, or very limited character creation options like you would find in a beginner box or a starter set where it kind of walks you through with like a little guide. Pick this, pick that, pick this. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it, I generally agree. I, there's two exceptions though. I think limited pre-gen characters for you as a DM, you want to have some sense of what all the players are going to be, right? You, you want to know what wanna, they're capable of. You want to know what they're capable of and how you can serve them. Uh, you know, you don't want to throw a party full of spellcasters, wizards and bards, and uh, an assassin into a front line of a war, unless they signed up for that. They probably didn't, uh, knowing their, their character choice. But also, one of the tricks you can use is you can also use your session zero, which we talked about earlier, as an easy session zero for your first time too, to have all the players roll up with you and then help you understand what the mechanic is that they're doing while, and while they're doing that, because they'll be looking things up in the books, you can prep and you, that gives you an idea to read through whatever content you have, notes, material, published adventure, published adventure, uh, to prep yourself for what they're doing, you know, and it becomes this collaborative experience. And the other caveat is if you have a bunch of experienced players who show up, they're going to probably expect to be able to roll their own characters for whatever your first time is. There might be some grumbling if they're forced to use pre-mades. Like I said earlier, delegate that they can, you can roll whatever you want, but you're restricted to, and this is the recommendation I would have, you're restricted to the core books because that's all I want to deal with. And if I don't understand some mechanic you found in there, you're responsible for making me explain it or I'm not going to let you do it. Exactly. It, it's If you're going to have people create characters or you know do more alteration to the pre-gens, do a session zero so you're all on the same page right. because the first time that bard uses charm person on your NPC and fucks up your plan you're going to be like, uh-oh, what do I do? Like, I Why was did you make him go masturbate? He was like your core, you needed him for information rest. Yeah, but he was ugly and I wanted him to just go and I wanted to see it would be funny. It would be funny, man. <laughs> so you, you never know where, with when there's magic in the game, you're not really always sure what's going to happen. So being kind of just aware of what the characters can do is going to make it easier. And, you know, the other thing I like about pre-mades is, like you were saying, experienced players, like sometimes in a short game like this, they'll be bored. Mm. Not that I've ever done this. And so they'll push the boundaries with min-maxing and fiddly builds on these characters because they're like, <laughs> whatever, I can make a ridiculous joke character. It's five sessions. Who cares? Um, and 
obviously, you know, if they're being total asshats about it, reel them in. Be like, hey, man, this is my first time. Can you just be cool and, like, maybe not try to, like, break the limits of the game here for me? Like, it's cool if you want to make a really powerful character, but, like, know how your stuff works at least so that, like... I can trust that you're being right. fair to me right. and the rest of the players. Don't make me have to worry about if your rules are right or not because I'm new to the game. Exactly. The other advantage is it's so easy to kind of create the buy-in for the characters in a campaign setting. Like one shots and limited series already kind of do this. Like maybe you're a company of, of soldiers or, you know, you're a hired group of adventurers and it starts that way. Um, that's really helpful. Uh, if you're going to have people create characters and do a session zero, have their characters know each other already. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Um, it will save you time. Uh, you will thank yourself later because then you won't have to create reasons for the party to stay together and stay. That's just good advice for DMs, even not first time DMs. Like just in general. Yeah. It make it saves you. It saves you so much time. <laughs> right. And the one thing I will say that is nice about using like a pre-generated character, it's a double-edged sword. Like we were saying, like maybe someone makes something ridiculous or they play like trash because they don't care. They're not attached to the character. That lack of attachment from having a pregen is going to make people more limited, more more willing to do this limited run of sessions because they know it's going to come to an end in, mm-hmm. in a short amount of time. And so the fact that they couldn't make their own special snowflake character, they will be you know more happy with that. Because mm-hmm. I'm usually the player who needs their character to be a unique snowflake with special powers. I need to own all the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we all have our thing. We all have our our uh, player. Failure. Totally so not about materialism, into. cheap materialism fantasies, guys. It's not, I promise. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, running a pre-made module. I think this is really the best bet that you can do. And I think that some of the best pre-made modules, and you can read them in advance and look at recommendations, uh, tell you basically how to run it. This is this is something that I really applaud, uh, applaud Paizo for doing because they do it for experienced GMs and for new GMs. You know, they, they understand that the chief constraint in running a game is time that the the DM has more responsibility than the other players do. So you're stepping up to do this, and the first question you're going to ask is, how am I going to find the time for all this stuff? So you start looking at ways to optimize it. How do you how do you do more with less time? How do you do more more efficiently? Uh, and, uh, and so pre-made modules are a great way to do that. And a lot of them, when you read through them, are geared toward the DM that's doing that. That being said, don't forget... Don't jump into a big, long campaign, right? You know, and you can buy those online. I think the the best pre-made adventures that you can find are what are self-advertised as one-shot adventures. And these are often targeted at like convention games or these kinds of things, but you can find plenty of them online for free uh, even because there are a lot of gamers who are like, hey, I have a p- bunch of buddies who are coming over tonight. We all kind of want to play D&D or we're looking for something to do and we don't want the night to end. It's like only seven o'clock. I wish I had a game prepped you know and so what you may find after you encounter this a few times as as a new dm or even one as an aspiring one is you can prep it ahead of time and just keep it prepped like an actor memorizing uh, a script or even just remembering parts of the notes for that test that you knew you were going to do and you keep it on hand and then you know like it pops out you maybe need only 20 minutes to fresh yourself up hand out some character sheets if you're using pre-mades and then off you go. You're, You're ready go. to go. And and because it's a one shot, it's geared at like a three or four hour time slot. So you're probably going to finish it. And if you don't get all the way there, it's easy to like wrap it up so people feel good at the end of the night, you know. And they often will have one shots advice in them for these are the things, you know, they're presented mm-hmm. because the goal of it is like this is going to be 
one one go. That's like the perfect situation for a beginner box or a starter set. Absolutely. Because it's like it's it's really open the box, you can pick it up and you can play it. Uh recently we played the Starfinder beginner box. Super good. And it was someone who had never DM'd before was able to sit down, run the game, went great, had a good amount of fun. Very simple. I will say, great. just as a, a sidebar, I think that starter boxes, I didn't have access to them when I was a kid. For a long time, they weren't published they in the really same like way. really like a thing that the way they are now. After third edition, it became, you know, digital publishing really took off and all of this. And now the starter boxes are great. They're, I strongly recommend pretty them. pretty cool That's now. a really great way to start in any RPG. The D&D starter box is a good one. The Starfinder starter box is a great one. Saying this as the person at the table who was not lucid for that game... It was easy for me, the player, to pick up my character and play and participate and have a good time, despite being sick. And for my spouse, who had never run a game before, but was curious and maybe wanted to, to step into the role very easily and do a great job. I have to admit, she killed it. And I was I was like, I wish my first time DMing went like that. Yeah, Holy shoot. Right. That was great. So big plus one for pre-made starter stuff. But I don't feel limited just to a starter box. Oh, the starter box is, yeah. is a great way a good also place to, to start. Go. But there's plenty of good adventures out there that can, can, you know, meet your needs. The nice thing, though, about having that pre-made module is that if something sucks, the players are probably more likely to blame the module instead of you. Yeah. Right? Because, like, the, exper- <laughs> the experienced players will make some Wizards of the Coast joke. And the inexperienced players are just going to be like, this is how this game is. I, I don't, don't know. know any difference. You know, like that that part's kind of nice because you can kind of disclaim a little bit of the responsibility. You're like, yeah, yeah that NPC was really poorly written, huh, guys? What, but a, also, what a terrible encounter. But people don't. I mean, I think when, if you're willing to go out there and be like when you put yourself out there as a DM, they're not going to shoot you down. I mean, hopefully know? if it's, they are, you may, want, you may want a different group if that's the case. Yes. Yes. If, I mean, if they're like really tearing you down, <laughs> why are you DMing for them in the first place? Uh, they go, don't deserve you. Go get a better teenage group. Right. So, <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that I really like about kind of having a pre-made adventure is there's usually kind of a set storyline or narrative already that kind of just puts the games on rails towards a certain thing. For example, if the, the adventure is called like Operation Princess Rescue, it's you're probably going to rescue the princess, right? And so right. when that player is like, oh, but what's about what's over that hill over there? It's easier to be like, hey, dude, like. This, we're trying to rescue the princess. It's the whole point of the adventure. You're like, just play ball with me here, right. man. This Come is why on. I said earlier, like, you want to have that tagline in your head, right? What's the title of the thing, yeah. or what is it? You know, exactly. like four so four adventurers up. go rescue a princess. That's that's what our driving thing and, is for tonight. And the nice thing is, like, an experienced player understands that a limited run adventure is more linear. It's not a fun sandbox for them to run around. If they're not being a dick, you know, they'll usually take your quest hooks and move things along. Right. If only because they want to get to a campaign where they can make a character. Either way, you know. As long as they're not being an asshole, it really shouldn't run into too much of a problem here. Right. So aside from that, you know, making sure you've chosen the right game or the right module uh, and you kind of have an idea of the characters and their capabilities. Um, You know, some people, it can be good even to write up those PCs yourself and kind of learn learn what they can do. And that can even be a good learning experience sometimes as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that falls very much into the realm of what prep do you do for the game uh, before the game? I think, uh, you know, and like what rules do you review? Because, you know, each session is going to have something that it's or where if you read through the adventure ahead of time and you should, then you have some idea of what what's involved. So, you know, have those rules on hand, have maybe a printed out quick reference sheet. Um, of course, read whatever it is you're going to run through. 
and then make notes, right? Like I like bullet points. I, I do lists. I do lists and sublists and outline. And, uh, and I can literally read the outline and it has branching different parts because outlines can do that. And this is why I love that as a note-taking mechanism. And I have margins that I can take notes in for stats or hit points or everything quickly. That's my note-taking method. Uh, other people I've played with as DMs love flowcharts. And they'll create flowcharts for the different ways the story can go. And they also can put notes in between the lines and they can have annotations. And it's like a series, it's like their own little logic map for that. Whatever it looks like for you, it's like taking notes, you know, and it can be digital. And I like paper because I like to draw, you know. The point here, I guess, is that there's some part of this note taking that could feel or sometimes a little. I don't know, studious, like like class notes, like I'm taking notes. A little tedious. Whatever it is, you you know, but but find the way, this is this should be a fun process. The prep you do before the game needs to be something it, that you enjoy. It should be a kind of lonely fun. If you're dreading your prep, if you're hating your prep, and you feel like it's not helping, you may just be prepping with the wrong techniques, you may be, right. prep, you may be over-prepping. Um, when you first start, it's hard to know. You're probably going to spend way more time prepping than you need to. Um, I'm one of those GMs, you know, when I first, I would prep for six hours for a game, not all in one sitting, but I, I was just so anxious. Oh, what if this, what if that, what if this? Then you realize and, like, you're not going to get to most of that yeah, stuff yeah, for you realize months and months You never and get months. as far as you think you'd, you're going to, except when the players decide to skip a section yeah. to the part that you haven't prepped. Of course, that will also happen as well. But the thing as a GM is remember like, yeah, you should, I always say you should review the rules and read the adventure. Those are two things you should do before your first session. You know, as you get better at DMing, you're probably going to review the rules less. You'll know more of the rules. You're going to review more of specific things. Like maybe there's an underwater battle coming up, so you need to know how aquatic combat works. I like to mark them with little stickies in the books. Right. Make Don't be afraid to take some notes in your book or to the side. It, it, it will help you um, because, you know, as a GM, it's not your job to know all of the rules. It really isn't. But you're always going to have a player or two, hopefully not too many of them, that somehow expect you to have memorized the entire Wizards of the Coast catalog. This was the role of the DM at Once Upon a Time. And and we disabused ourselves as a community of this, and I'm glad for it. Once Upon a Time in the old, old days and the second edition days. and In the long, long ago. In the first, I think, part of third edition is where it started to change with so much else. The DM was the final arbiter, which meant, due to the wording, that the DM was expected to be able to arbitrate the details of any of the rules in any of the supplements that anybody had at the table, which the only way you could effectively do that, if you were a critically thinking DM, as most DMs are, was to understand the rules. So then you had to learn both rules. And if you had this player who wanted to use this particular spell resistance combat maneuver from this supplement they published five years after the core rule books. And this one was using a particular spell that had this key phrase about how unblockable it was, blah, blah, blah. And they're both buried deep in their rules. You had to be able to adjudicate that, which meant that you had to know everything. And that that's a mistake. I, you that's, know, a, that's, a, that's a big, big mistake. You know, I agree. I'm huge on saying it is the player's responsibility to know how their shit works. Yeah. Like, and as a DM, you shouldn't have to know how everyone at your table's abilities and th spells work. You should have enough trust with your players that they're doing it fairly and not cheating. Though for your first game, the more that you know, the more it's going to help you. Uh, because 
there's so many rules in this game. You can't know them all. Yeah. So knowing the ones that are relevant to the characters you, and players you have at the table will really help. And you, and you've played the game, so you know you have some sense of of what how the game flow is and what the things are that are relevant in a fight or or stuff like that. But uh, the most important part, I think, is to be able to make sure that it feels fair, right? You, know, you need to know enough of the rules so that each of the players feels like they're having a fair shake at this exactly. game, what it looks like. And and then the rest of it is, how do you make it interesting? How do you make it yeah, fun? How do you I, make it... I think something to note is, like, don't be afraid to use a GM screen or cheat sheets for certain rules. I think it's a great idea to use there's, a GM screen as a first game yeah, you're they're, running. They're super helpful. Just having, like, the actions in combat or the conditions on hand. Have the ability to fudge dice. Yes. Like, if you need to for your first game, that's something you may want to do because you're not going to know how to handle it in other ways. You don't have those tools and skills yet. Right. You know, like... I love to roll out in the open, but like that was after years of using a screen and kind of figuring how it works. Me it, too. You know, it, it's fudging dice is something you may need to do when you're first running just because you don't want to derail the campaign and you don't know what else to do. I mean, Keep it's in expedient. Mind, and it's, it's a very controversial thing for some players. Like if I knew my DM was fudging dice as a teenager, I would be like, you fucking cheater, I'm out of here. But nowadays I'd be like, well, I'm sure he's curating the experience to make it suck less, so I'm fine with it. Yes, except I mean, he's, you only are like you only do that fudging, and the only type of fudging I think really that should happen. You only, you only do the the only kind of fudging that happens when you rage quit is when they're fudging their <laughs> bad guy NPC to be more badass than you. Do not and rage it feels quit. Feels unfair, and it feels unfair. Don't give him more HP just because you wanted him to last longer. But the kind of fudging that is useful that you learn eventually, you will learn how to work around. But as an as your first time, you definitely want the DM screen for is how to fudge in favor of the PCs. Yeah, it right? should never be harmful for the PCs when you're doing this. I mean, we, we talked the, about this in our dice episode a little bit right. from the second edition. They, the authors even mentioned it. Right, and and one of the things is that players are inclined to zag. They're inclined to go directions that oh, you don't will. anticipate, and also to get in over their heads. That's part of the fun of the game. They're going to get in over their heads, and you, as the DM, one of your responsibilities is to make it so that they don't have a bad time. Everybody's there to have fun. You know, I so mean, you're, you're not responsible for everybody's fun. No, you, they're you each responsible for their that. own. But However, you, you can make you sure they don't have a bad yes, time. Yes, you should foster an environment in which they can have fun. Which, if they get it over their head and it turns out it was a TPK or it's looking real bad, you may really want to start fudging some yeah, dice that, rolls behind your DM screen. That goblin may start want to miss a little bit. So it depends. You know, don't be afraid in your first game, you know, if you need to do something like that. This is the time where it's probably the most okay. Mm-hmm. People will understand. Um, and it, let's talk about the rules sp- specifically. Just kind of like, what are the key things you should kind of... There's there's an entire book of rules. What are the most important things? I mean, I think for your first game, you need to know how initiative works. Yeah. You need to know how the basics of combat work. I don't think that you need to know... I think you need to know enough of the rules for a fight or any kind of risky, dangerous encounter, be it a fight or a, a, a trap or a rolling boulder. It doesn't have to be... Specific. The grid... It doesn't have to be strictly theater of the mind, but it has to be one or the other. And I think you'd do well to be pretty facil- faci- pretty skilled in both. I think that uh, I think that being able to use them, you know, and have enough of a reference, like you know how to draw a room on a battle map, you know how movement works, you know how what the actions are. So yeah, I would say on that note, how to handle action resolution, which is really the core mechanic of. Fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons is rolling a dice, 
adding modifiers to it and seeing if you meet a certain DC. You need to know the, how the and ability scores it, and skills affect those modifiers. Exactly. Ability checks, saving throws, skills, like they all depend on this this core mechanic. It's the core mechanic of the entire game. Roll a D20. And in D20, everything's really bounded to that core mechanic mathematically. So understanding that makes things, just knowing that will give you a lot of the action resolution tools that you need to run the game and like you're saying the other thing is know how combat works because dungeons and dragons combat can be a slog even when you know what you're doing and it can be tricky combats don't always go the way you would think they they rarely, and, rarely do and i would say if you're feeling uncomfortable uncomfortable with your how to run a combat set up some pcs or use pre-gen ones look at the adventure and run one of those encounters. Simulate it. Like, simulate it as if you were the players. What do the monsters do? What abilities do they have? It'll give you an idea of how, okay, how will I run this combat for reals? It, it sounds kind of silly to sit there and play by yourself, but it will help you immensely. Um, it's something me and my friends used to do for fun. Just to see, like, oh, you think you could beat a storm giant with your character? I don't know. Let's simulate it and find out. One of these days, we're going to get our characters and we're going to take on the Tarrasque, I'm telling you. <laughs> Famous last words. Um, the other thing I think that's really important is the magic systems. Now, I'm not saying you are going to be responsible for knowing your PCs, spells, and abilities. We know people are going to be looking up spells. It's it's always a, a lagging point in the game. But you need to know how the system at large functions, right? That spells have this verbal, somatic, material components mm -hmm. that... Spells usually use spell slots that... There's a difference know, between arcane and divine. Exactly. Wizards like, and, and warlocks. You don't need to know it in depth, but you need to know it in breadth. Yeah, and I think that also knowing what rests look like, right? Like, this is why I was talking earlier about, like, pacing and the flow of the game, right? It, you it have is, to understand both the how to keep a combat pacing alive. That's why the combat rules are, are useful in various situations. Maybe skills and, and, and how, how to use skills for challenges and pacing. And then also, yeah, magic. Magic and action resolution. How do you keep things moving? Because that's one of the other big responsibilities that you have, as, especially the first time when everybody's new trying to figure it out, is how to keep it moving. How to know... How to resolve when a player tries to do something and move on to the next thing. Because the players will drive forward. They, You can rely on them for that. That's the thing that you usually don't have to know God, how to I do. God, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Once you, once you <laughs> dangle something in front of them, it's their responsibility to grab it, you know? And they are not going to go probably the direction that you thought. But that's okay. Now you can be reactive. And being reactive is just sort of following what's logical to you. And then talking to them about it yeah, and asking for what's logical to them. Your own sense of own common sense and logic will get you very far mm -hmm. in a combination with the rules. Um, the other thing to do to prep for your first game is to really read through that module. And the way I like to do it is read through the module once. Just read it and then test yourself by seeing if you can write down a quick summary or just recounting what happens out loud to yourself, kind of like you're telling a story. And if you can do either of those things without having to refer back to it, you're doing pretty good. But regardless of how well you do, you should go through it again and make more specific notes on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah taking notes. I mean, I, I look for corollary media as a reference. Like, I think screenplays are very, very relevant to definitely D&D uh, &D games and to modules in particular because screenplays are very reductive. They don't include any of the dressing, you know, none of the set, none of the actors. It's just the structure of the story. And the details you need in, in text about what that story requires, you know, there's the set, like what's in it, and it includes the props. And that's very much what any published adventure or non-published adventure, your notes 
are. So being able to read through something like that, you know, your synopsis, go whatever your favorite movie is, how do you create a synopsis? Let's say you create a synopsis of Star Wars and give yourself one page of lined paper, write it down, and and the structure of it, as if the player characters were... I guess who who starts that out? So we're talking Luke and 3PO and R2-D2 and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And there's your party of four. And uh, 3PO is probably the bard. And that's probably why I hate bards, even though I went to bard college, because 3PO is the worst. And uh, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi is literally the wizard. Anyway, whatever. So, you know, and, and, and as a thought exercise. And um, if you're not inclined to write it down on paper, maybe then do it in the shower, you know, uh, while you're driving to work. Yeah, it, it's a good thinking about thing. You got to spend some thought, a little because, bit of brain cycles on it. Exactly. And just thinking about the game, reading it will really help. Like, I love to, like, take a walk and think about it in my head. I constantly just think about the game that I'm going to run and what could happen. Yeah, I can't turn it off. Right, exactly. I can't turn it <laughs> off. That's why we're doing this podcast right now. I that's probably why you're considering running the game, because you probably can't turn it off. Exactly. Either. You can't. It's just in your head. So when you're making these notes, um, the things there's certain things that focusing on will really help. We've talked about them a little bit. Um, Skyler mentioned flow charts for this one, and this is exactly how I do it. Um, kind of the possible outcomes might be, and what leads to those outcomes. And the nice thing about a flow chart is like you don't know which player where your players are going to go, but you kind of have an idea of the main big choices they can make and what that might cause. And it makes it kind of a flow chart's an easy way to organize that information. You can do it with an outline, but just kind of knowing like what the narrative anchor points are and, mm-hmm. and what would lead to those outcomes, right? So that's one to really consider because that's kind of the overlay of the whole narrative there. Here's a cheap trick, cheap, useful trick. When you're taking your notes, you're going to reference a lot of stuff. Remember to write the acronym or a reference and the page number oh God, in your notes. You will thank yourself later. You will thank yourself. I do this so much because... Once you start getting other books into the mix, you know, you're going to, or other supplements or documents, you will want to know which one that is. Right. And that boils down also to like, hey, all right, I I understand that I'm going to have some NPCs, maybe even some villains, and they have magic. You know, this character has magic missile and that one has fireball. And make a note somewhere in your notes or in the margin, whatever, what page those spells are on so you can find it quickly. Because in your prep, you're like, oh, I have plenty of time to look it up. But when you're sitting there at the table and you don't have that page number and you're trying to find it and flip to it, it's going to feel like an eternity. Right. Remember that your job is to adjudicate, right? So, you know, okay, you don't have to know necessarily, you know how Magic Missile works, but, oh, man, does it actually, is it a... Is it a D6, 3D6, or is it D4 plus 1? It's always D4 plus 1, right? right? Somebody asks, well, okay, well, let's look it up real quick. And you can find it, and you can find it quick enough. But if you have that page number, you can be like, boop, there it is, you're good. And the game rolls on, and not even a blip. That's the way to do it. Um, also, knowing basic information on NPCs and the related plot hooks or important magic items, just kind of knowing some details there will help you. Like, if you have an important magic item in your little adventure, you, you should know how it works right um you should know who the npcs are know what it so can do make a couple notes there um there's plenty of ways you can do that uh, a lot of the time some of these notes will be done for you if you're buying a pre-made thing like you just have to read it and make a note that helps you remember um the other thing that i think is really really helpful for a new dm that you're going to forget is knowing the capabilities of the monsters and enemies you're going to put a- against the players you will run combats with a monster and then realize, oh, I haven't used this ability or applied its effect this whole time. I totally forgot, even though it's right there on the stat block. Mm-hmm. We all have done it. It will happen. But the thing is, if you run a mock combat on your own, like we were talking about earlier, 
you'll probably remember to use it and mm-hmm. you'll have a better idea of how that monster might act. It's not something you have to do, but just knowing kind of what those monsters' options are, just like knowing what your players' options are, will give you a better idea of the the possible outcomes of the encounters you're going to put put forth in front of your players. Um, and one of my other personal tips, because I'm a big map guy, uh, if you're going <laughs> to use a map, keep it handy as you read through. Totally. Um, because I can't tell you how many times if I'm reading through a dungeon, I have to flip back down to the map. I'm like, what room are they? T- what, what room is this? And you see the room and you flip back and you flip back, trying to picture it in your head. Have the map handy as you read through. It'll make it so much easier for you to connect to the descriptions you're reading about to the the, the pseudo virtual areas your players are going to be exploring. I, I strongly encourage you to print it out. Even if you don't have a printer at home, go to like a FedEx office. Yeah, that's uh, what I do. Or something and print it out because it's it's so useful and not just maps. Maps are in, indispensable for plotting out, especially if there's like time that you have to manage. Like characters walk here at this time and they talk to this person first and the other character, you know, the players are like stealthing their way through and you need to know the order of events for uh, whatever it is you're going to do. But also for portraits of characters, you know, to be able to show people what they look like, to have props or anchors An image for the to players. a face can be very helpful. It really, it, it. You know, a picture saves a thousand I, words. I really literally. like uh, cards for this, like little character cards yeah, that you can really put out useful. on the table yeah. so people can see the name and the character's face because otherwise they're going to forget. This is something that Roll20 does really well. They give you a lot of art, you know, and you get an adventure there too or you can find it on the internet and you can share and show it to the PCs, force them to look here, here, boom, pull them to this map. This is what this yeah, person and, looks and, like. And having either pictures or just knowing the kind of the descriptions, having something in your head, like mm-hmm. an image you've built of what you've read, mm-hmm. will really help you rely less on reciting box text verbatim from the adventure uh which you know your player's eyes are going to glaze over after two sentences if you're going to read the box text out loud and you can remember that it's also your job to make it come alive yeah you you gotta put some oomph into that right you know i'm getting a little thirsty I'm thirsty too. I think I'm a little parched here. We should stop into this handy tavern right over here and uh, have a brew. There's always a tavern. This is great. Yeah. So welcome to Tavern Talk, the part of the show where we have a brew and we toast to you, our awesome listeners. Thanks for listening. We're happy to have you. And uh, we're going to talk about a, a brew that we have here today and also a contest that we have the last week. This is the last week of the contest. If you haven't sent any of your info to us by this point, then this is your last chance. This is your last chance. Do it now. So what is the... Do it now. Get to the get to the raffle now. <laughs> the raffle. <laughs> Anyway, today... What is is the brew we have today? Today we are drinking Stone's Arrogant Bastard Ale. I thought it was a fitting choice because you have to be a little bit of an arrogant bastard to step in there and run your first game. The subtag for this is, you're not worthy. Don't worry, we think you are worthy. This is definitely not true. We believe in you. we understand the self-doubt. You can do it. You totally can be an arrogant bastard and run a game. In fact, we all need you to. The world will be a better place. Please run more games. (laughs) So, uh, tell me about this this beer. This is a beer that I've drinking on and off probably for the uh, last decade. Uh, it was a little bit more fun when before the big hop craze has hit craft brew. 
It's yeah. very aggressive. It, it is it is bitter. It is aggressive. It will be the last beer you want on your palate if you're having more than one, though. With it this literally beer, it will, says, this is an aggressive beer on the back. Yeah. Yeah. It says you, you probably won't like it. And that's, of course, to, you know, people, that's a challenge. They're like, I'll show you. Hence the name Arrogant Bastard Ale. The thing is, you're, you're totally spot on. This, this is not a new beer, and it's been around for a while, and it was lauded for a long time as one of those very hops forward. And now it's just middle of the, middle of the road with the hops. Yeah, now it's good. It's very good uh, still. And I think that just maybe reflects the thinking of the American beer palate in today's world. I don't know. Yeah, we're just guys who like beer. We're not beer review professionals. But I can say this is a solid ale still. I still enjoy it. It will slow you down a little bit. It will. It definitely will. It will sit on your palate pretty uh, heavy. It's about 7%. 7.2 APV. So it's it's stiff, but not a kick in the face. Um, But it definitely has a... I would say this is what I would... It's like a classic hoppy beer. And you drink it and you go, yeah, I don't don't need to rush through this. And I think maybe I need something different when I'm done. And my favorite part is at the bottom of this beer, it says, if you don't like this beer... Keep it to yourself. We don't want to hear from any sniveling yellow beer drinking wimps because this beer wasn't made for you. <laughs> True to its name, the Arrogant Bastard Ale. So this is a solid one. You can't go wrong with it if you enjoy hoppy beer. Stone is usually a safe bet for most type of brews. We hope that you're able to take your arrogant bastardness and transform it into awesome. confident scoundrelness yes. as, a, as a good DM. Because I think that... Uh, uh, maybe the arrogance gets you there, but it'll definitely certainly turn to confidence while you're doing and, it. And wisdom. So tell me about this raffle that we have. I want to know what this last time is that we have this raffle for our lucky listeners. Well, you're going to be shocked. It's the same as the last seven weeks. We're giving away the core books, uh, the foil set, not the regular books, the foil set. It comes with a little handy cozy to put them in. It comes with a really cool little DM screen. Um, the books have the holographic foil on the cover. Now you're thinking, yeah, I already have the core books, of course. Otherwise, why am I listening to this if I don't have the core books? Well, now you can give yours to someone as a cool hand-me-down gift, and you can have the cool shiny ones for yourself. You could also be a player who just has the PHB and has decided you think you might want to try running a game, and this I would mean, be a bomb-ass It does have set. the Monster Manual, DMG, and the Player's Handbook, everything you need to run your And games. a nice cozy and a DM screen, and it's nice and foil, so your players would be like, all right, this player clearly, this DM clearly knows what he's doing. He got a nice set. Uh, I, I feel like he respects the game. I feel like I trust this person. Plus, they're shiny, so... They're beautiful. They're shiny. I'm jealous still. I'm still jealous of them. So how can you win these books? Well... So- if you, you have to share, you have to share the show. You have to share that you shared the show with somebody. So like a hashtag on Twitter, Far Realms Radio. Instagram. Throw us an at on Twitter or Instagram at Far Realms Radio. Send us a video of you telling your friend. Yeah, you could be, as long as you shared the show in some way, you could have texted your friend. That's fine. Shoot us a, take a screenshot, send it to farrealmsradio at gmail.com. Email. You know, shoot it our way. We'll make sure you get entered in it. And then we'll draw and uh, put all of the entrance into a big hat. Only one per person. Yep. We'll pull out the winner, and then we'll let you know. Depending on how many entrants we get, we may even just roll dice. Ooh. We'll see. We'll come up with something fun and creative, and we'll probably video it for you guys. I like this idea. Yeah. That's how we're going to do this thing. All right. Let's get back to what is involved in the actual running of the first game. Let's do it. Back to the show.
right. We talked a lot about the prep for the game, the decision to run a game, what it involves, getting the people, the playing, and what are some of the things that, in your opinion, is your job during the game itself? What do you? What do you as the like in the in the midst of it, in the thick of it? Oh, what my, do you need to be able to do? My favorite phrase for this is narrate and adjudicate. Those are the main things you're going to be doing in any game as a GM. I like that. Right? It also has that nice kind of little rhyme to it. Anyway, <laughs> the narration is kind of the thing we we all know GMs do. The exposition, the narration. Um, some of us are better at it than others. I'm not the greatest there. Uh, but essentially as the DM, it's important to remember you control the flow of information to the players. Without you, they have no idea what is going on in this world that their characters are standing in. It's your job to describe to them what is happening within the game. And this is a skill that you may be good at at off the bat. You may struggle with it. Either way, you'll probably get better as you go through and kind of learn what things you need to truly mention and which things to avoid. Um, Because you need to know the details of the world or the adventure in order to communicate it to the players. Uh, You need to know these details because it lets you kind of create more of a living, breathing world, right? That, That creates some verisimilitude or immersion so it comes alive like a a breathing living place for your players yeah i mean i think that uh i would i like narrate and adjudicate and i would add another which is i'm just sitting here thinking like what would i call it you know and i wrote down i'm gonna tell you the words i wrote down and i don't like the words so i'm gonna tell you another word after that i wrote down fun (laughs) czar and then the word after it i thought of was funometer Fun police. No, that's I thought of fun, fun police. Wait, I didn't write that one down no. on, on purpose. You're not the fun cop. You know, it's not. This is uh, this is why it's hard because to to figure out what to call this because you are not. There's no enforcement in this. You're role. more of uh, offering enable. You are enabler. That's the point of it. Is that you as the DM, you narrate, you adjudicate, and also it's your job. Phenometer is the closest I came to because you are the one who is uniquely empowered to be watching everybody at the table to see who is having fun and who is not. I would use the phrase to curate. Yeah. Maybe curate the experience Curator, there. sure. And, and 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 to be able to look at and see like, okay, this person is really engaged in this and that person is not. So maybe I need to change the flow some. Maybe I need to interject something. Maybe I need to have some ninjas kick in the door. Uh, whatever it is, you know, but like that's, that's part of it. You're the one who has the... You, you're the periscope from the submarine above water looking around. You're the DM. And so making sure that everybody is engaged in the game is part of it, too. Also make your job easier. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. When you're doing the narration, avoid too much verbatim reading of the box text like we've talked about earlier. People will tend to tune out if you're just kind of reading off that box text. Yeah, if you're going to read it, you have to you have to bring it to life. And, you know? and honestly, try not to read it verbatim. Read it. Think about it for a second and then communicate it. Digest what it is they see. Out of your head, right? Like, Or use it in your imagination. What is the room like? like, And go from there. This has changed for what it's worth from edition to edition. Like in, in prior editions, they wanted you to explicitly read all the box text. There was a lot of box text. In this edition, when you look playing at D&D, there's not very much box text. But the box text that they do have, they very much want you to read. And the quality of it isn't as good. <laughs> And Paizo with Pathfinder <laughs> has very good box text, and also you don't need to read it because they have other whatevers. But my, I guess the point is you have to bring it to life, right? You, you, the narration piece is about 
finding a way for the players to hook into that imaginary reality. And it's usually based on one of the five senses, you know? So if you digest it, you can think about things like, what does it sound like? How does it feel on your skin? What does it smell like? What do you feel in your feet? You know, and being able to answer those questions or come up with one of your own. And you only need one for any scene, you know, like the enter a room, you can just focus on what maybe it's, you hear a crackling of dry leaves. You smell the scent of burnt wood. Like an old school dungeon RPG, like text-based. You know, yeah. you get one little descriptor. You only need to have one. You only have so much room for text on the screen. Right. You only have so much room for words at the table. But I will say that that was some advice you had given me when I, we were talking about scene setting before as I was getting back into to DMing again. And it has been so helpful just trying to include like two senses and a room description because when you add in like the smell for some reason, it just makes things feel so much more real. Right. Uh, because you'll notice most DMs vision and hearing and they'll skip smell or tactile sensations or temperature and things like that. And that can really, for some people, like it may not work on all players, but some players that will really give that connection. Like for me, I'm a big player when people start describing smells for some reason. Yeah, that really works it, for you. It really works for me. And I get uncomfortable or I'm like, oh my God, it's so real. I don't know what it is. I'm sensitive to smell. So it's just I, something that works for on me. For me, it's always auditory, right? What is the background sound? This is why I use music and sound effects in my game because that puts me the DM in the in the world, you know, like it, that's, it's what mo I hook into most is like, oh yeah, this feels like that place. Lighting can help a lot. I, I want to explicitly discourage you from going too far down this path. Don't, however, don't go X-Files, don't go candles. Remember it's that not, this is a game, it's not a seance. this is a game of the imagination. It does not need a fog machine. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, if that's your thing, more power to you, man. Um, the other, so, you know, when you go through narration, like, have a little fun with it. There's not too much pressure. Don't be afraid to use box text or notes or things that may help you. Make it come alive for the yeah, players is just, the most important part. Yeah, and that's going to come with time. Don't put too much pressure on yourself to do it right now. Right now, your goal should be, can I actually describe this adequately so my players know what's going on? You right. can get fancy and descriptive and colorful later. Right, and they need to be able to achieve their objectives, your, right? Their yeah. objectives are going to be like, I want to go buy a thing. I want to go find that person and talk to him. It'll be a process I wanna, of... like sell some stuff. Yeah, it'll be a process of learning how much description is too much and how much is too little, and it'll take you a while to find that kind of that sweet spot. We've all played with that DM who gives you like a paragraph of like, he steps out the door into the morning light and sweats, wipes the sweat from his brow as he looks down the road to a carriage moving slowly towards him, and they just go on like it's a fucking novel. I remember distinctly the very first time I had a badass NPC that had a whole paragraph text that I rehearsed and had music, and I thought my players were going to love it, and they checked out. Yeah, they usually check out by the second <laughs> or third sentence, unless yeah, you're like... Yeah, it was fast. Yeah, yeah, it's it was faster very than you fast. think, so... Have fun with the narration. Don't go on for it too long. Your players will help you with this, you know, mm -hmm. by just doing crazy things. Um, speaking of crazy things that players do, that's the adjudication, right? That's essentially it's you as the DM making a judgment on what happens when the players or the forces in the world take action. Yeah, I mean, there will be resolution that needs to happen, right? You know, the player, most times when they do something, they don't know if what they're going to do is going to succeed. Are they going to try to attack somebody they try and pick a pocket they try and convince the girl to smile at you and give you your drink for free whatever you know they but they don't know if it's going to work and that's baked into their understanding of the game they have powers they have skills they roll a die they try to see if it works it's your job to tell them the result but also when they don't need to do that 
right? That's a big part of it. Your, your job as the DM is to tell, help them understand what they do need to roll for and what they don't need to roll for. And this is very much up to your feeling and sensibility of the game. So nowadays in our thinking of the game, it's not very fashionable to have the players roll for everything. Once upon a time, that was a very common trope. We're you know? a little more fiction first these days. Right. You know, and, and that was like, once upon a time, you would run a game and the player would roll to see if they can convince the bartender to sell them a beer when you should just be able to buy a beer. And nowadays, maybe even just like your character goes and gets a beer and we don't track the gold expenditure because who cares? Really? Are we in it for the accounting? I'm not. Are you? Are you in it for the accounting of every copper piece? Some players are. In your game, actually, we don't even use anything but gold, right? There's nothing but I mean, gold. We could, we could get started about gold, electrum, and platinum and go on and on about coinage, but that's another another right. argument for another right. day. So, <laughs> I mean, I think it's just the, the, the point of it is to, to keep... To keep the fun happening and to keep yeah. the flow moving, I think right? Big, to being able to adjudicate for the players what makes sense that's an automatic thing they can just have. Yeah. So that, you know, like, they can affect the world in this way and they don't need to roll for it. Whereas these kinds of other things, like fighting somebody, is going to require yeah. and, a roll. And, you know? and learning passive versus active skill use and, and action resolution is going to take time. It, it, it's a little tricky. It's a little bit more advanced. Um, but you'll get it the more that you practice it. The thing to remember um, when you're doing rules and trying to adjudicate things is that your common sense and your rules are both just tools. They're just tools. You're not a slave to the rules. Like your judgment overrides the rules, right? So there's going to be times where you don't need to refer to the rules and just kind of learning how to discern when you need to refer to the rules and when you don't is going to be a big part of having a good flow to the game and building your confidence as a GM. Uh, because don't you shouldn't be afraid to hand wave something, especially your first time in the game, for just the sake of keeping the game going, keeping the pacing right. going. You can look it up afterwards. And something that I like to tell people is like, you can just tell your players, like, look, this is how I'm going to rule on this right now because I don't want to break the pace to look it up. We can look it up later, and for future sessions, we can we can adjust it moving forward. But for now, this is the ruling that I'm going to make. Right. That's that's the heart of rule zero, right? You Which gotta, is the, you gotta have that confidence to it's say the, that. It's the most important part, you know. And I think that's that's one of the things that that the the piece about. Having confidence to be the DM is is important. Being able to say, you know, we're going to make this call right now because this is what I understand. And that's really what it boils down to. You don't even have to say why. This is the call we're going to make right now. Yeah, but, but at the end of the day, it's enough to say, like, this is the call we're going to make right now because I understand this way and I want to move this on. And then we'll revisit it later. And that's totally acceptable and also something to be done that's a skill you just need as a DM. Yeah, you're not a slave to the rules. And the more confident you get, the more confident you'll be with either changing rules or ignoring them or right. kind of learning which ones maybe suck that you need to change different for your purposes. Now, you may run into more experienced players. I'm one of these who may have the rules kind of memorized in some ways and might push back when you suggest, hey, we're going to have it work this way. And they're going to be like, but it works this way. What the might You're invalidating my character choices. And oh, no. Um, and there's a couple ways you can handle this. This is one that can be tough. Like, I nowadays like to just thank that player for clarifying and catching that rule for me because I know I can't know them all. And I actually really do appreciate that. And so if some player is going to give me that clarification, I'm like, awesome, cool, thank you. We're going to use that. I really appreciate you looking that up or knowing that. Thank you. Right. We'll go with that. Wow. All right. Didn't know it was your thing. We're going to do it that and, way. But there's a way that they can do it that can be proper. And there's a way that they can do it that can be a dick. 
Yeah. And if they're being a dick, just tell them to stuff it. You're the DM right now. And right. say, hey, how about after... You can tell them, hey, but how about after the game, you teach me how that rule works right. so that in the future, I can make sure I'm doing it right. I mean, this is why it comes down to like what people you're playing exactly. with. Like, nobody's but, there, hopefully, to be usually, a dick to each other. Usually, if you kind of recognize that they have knowledge on this rule and say, hey, maybe after the game, you could teach it to me, they, yeah. you know, they'll usually be a little bit more cool with maybe dealing with it for this one session. Yeah, Especially because they know... resource or something. They know it's a limited run of sessions. They'll, they'll put up with it. Right. We've all put up with shitty games or campaigns for a while because we knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel i mean there's an easy gotcha i think with players and dms both when you know there's a rule that happens it doesn't understand it feels like somebody's cheating it's not true it's just it can feel that way stupid human stuff you know and it's i think it's the more important part is the flow of the game like i said earlier you have to make sure that it feels fair it doesn't have to actually be fair all truth be told it just has to feel fair for everybody they go like okay i feel like i got a fair shake and we can talk about it later you know and and that's part of the core of this game is that it's a social game so you know you have to be able to do that stuff i know i know a lot of us may struggle with the social parts of the game for me certain there's certain sticking points there and different people are dealing with different things so you got to meet them with where they're at you know if, mm-hmm. if you have a player who deals with something like anxiety maybe not throw the spotlight on them all the time if you know you know it's, it's tough for them that's something that when you're first dming it's going to kind of be hard um, you're going to be so stuck on trying to just wrap your head around the whirlwind of activity of running the game that you won't have time to read your players um, is something you may maybe you do. If so, that's awesome. I mean, if you're, you do, then you're probably not paying attention to the rules. <laughs> probably not if it's your first first game. But that's something I noticed. It took me a while, even with jumping back into 5e before I could spend time reading my players right. rather than like flipping frantically through a book, being prepared for whatever was going to happen next. So. You know, don't be hesitant to adjudicate the way that you need to to keep the flow, to keep the pace of the game. And kind of talking about that pace of the game, that loop, um, you know, every game kind of has a gameplay loop, right? You know, Pokemon, you go, you train your Pokemon, you catch new ones, you heal them, you get gym badges, rinse and repeat, right? Most RPGs especially have some kind of gameplay loop. I mean, even Mario, right? You start a level, you run through the level, you try to get the end at the same time. Monster Hunter has an amazing gameplay loop, which always gets me. I love it. Magic the Gathering has turns. Right. right? So there's always going to be something there. Um, But I think no matter what, however you're looking at this loop uh, in in Dungeons & Dragons, create a strong start for for whatever your session may be. Um, This is one that I learned from Mike Shea's uh, Lazy Dungeon Master's Guide, which is a fantastic resource for new DMs. Um, it's one of the few out there that will probably actually help you prep for the game. Big plus one. Um, I would highly recommend you check it out. Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Also very Shea. good. Also very Fantastic. good. Fantastic. It has some really good resources that can help you feel less anxious about your prep. Um, it really helped me the first time I read it. It's great stuff. Mike Shade is awesome. Awesome material. So you can't go wrong there. Uh, you may see it listed under Sly Flourish as well. So check that out if you're feeling a little anxious about where to start. Lazy Dungeon Master's Guide is big, big plus. But yeah, one of his one of my favorite tips for Mike is that you should create a strong start. Um, I think personally the easiest way to do this is kind of starting in media res. And you took the words right, right out of my mind. Right, right, yeah. And when in doubt, start with combat. Like, it sounds... Silly, but it really works. When I actually st- think combat is way better than even a chase. No, when you start combat, people zone in because there's suddenly risk, right? Like they could die, something could go wrong. People will they'll stand up sometimes and really pay attention and look at that board more than if you know you're starting in a fucking tavern. Right. I mean, it's an <sighs> old trope, I, but I think part of why like a fight is really good as opposed to a chase is because chase rules are often very hard to adjudicate in any game, uh, and it requires I don't know it, a lot of weird 
event-based. It's just they're, they're also, not... A chase has to have the possibility of complete failure for it to feel like a chase. Right. A fight is a very clear... In Medeiriaz, in Medeiriaz is really the way I think that's the best. Like, why, what's in the middle? What's the most important thing that's happening right now? Answer this question for yourself and also see if the players can answer it right now. Right now. It's a life or death choice. Why? And the nice thing is that, like most modules and one shots that you're going to be running for this will... They'll start you there. They'll start you there or very close to it to the point where you can like maybe they start you know down the road but you can flip to combat in the first five minutes and really kind of get everyone dialed in. If they don't, if they're like, yeah, you roll into a town, the players should be arriving on a wagon, blah, blah, blah. Have the wagon be attacked. Remember, you're the DM. You're in charge. You can always have orcs attack the party. It's, it's up to you. No one's going to question orcs attacking the party most of the time. There's very few contexts in D&D where they're like, oh my god, this is so unrealistic that orcs would attack us here. Also, very seldom is any player going to be like, yeah, I really am not looking forward to showing off my powers, killing a bunch of mooks. It is a game about killing monsters and taking their things. <laughs> yes. So that's not a bad thing to use. The game is designed to do that well. The The other thing I would say is, honestly, of this is me personally, avoid the starting in a tavern, characters meeting each other, bullshit. Um, you're running a limited setting session adventure. It should take care of some of this already by providing a background while your characters might know each other or giving you a starting scene. You're only playing a couple sessions. Don't waste it on your characters doing this awkward introduction kind of stuff. Start out, like, assume the party either knows each other or you can do something that you'll see in, like, Fate and other systems where each PC knows Shared at least... background. Yeah, they know at least one other PC from their past. Yeah, this one's tough, actually, for a 5th edition, I think. It's, uh, in a lot of the adventures that they publish, uh, the official ones, they're, they're not as really explicit on how to start the players in the same place, uh, how to start them knowing each other, how to have a bond. I think that this is a thing that you can totally push off to the players and should, especially for your first session. Put it on the players as their responsibility. You all have to figure out, as a group, this is your first challenge, you have to figure out how you all know each other and make it good. And don't, you know, get caught up in arguing while you do it. And then whatever they come up with, give them like 10 experience. Yeah. Congratulations, you have the experience of all starting together. And uh, and you guys now all know each other, and you they they solved that for yes, you. And you can always bribe them with experience or gold. And while they're arguing about and creating and talking and all of the things that they have a shared background and where they come from, take listen, notes. Take notes. Take this notes. this gives you an easy hook. It gives you oh, automatic easy stuff the, to just riff off. They're of. doing your work for you. Yes. So take notes when you when they start to come up with that kind of stuff. Uh, it will really help. It, it's not the DM's job to give you a reason. To be in a party of adventurers, that's yes. literally the player's job is to create an adventurer. It's not the DM's job, especially not in their first session. That's ridiculous. Right. So moving on from that, let's kind of look at the loop itself because it's surprisingly simple, actually. <laughs> You're going to, one, describe what is happening. You will then certainly ask the players, what do you do? You're going to say this phrase a lot. If you're not saying this phrase in some form a lot, you might be doing something wrong. Right. I mean, the game is basically you make a description, they hear it, they do something. And then you, you probably prompt them, what do you do? That's right. how they know that this turn, their turn to act. And then you're going to adjudicate their actions, you know, through dealing with the rules or you, however. You respond to what they say. You need to resolve those actions. You're going to describe the consequences of those actions. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? You're going to ask them what they do again. Right. And the cycle will continue like that. And then the game will be over eventually. Yeah, I mean, and you it's overly simplistic sounding, but it's surprising how far that carries you. And and also, when you ask the question, what do you do? 
you know, you describe the room, you describe who's in the room, you describe what's going on and all the scene, what they hear. And, you know, you've been talking for 30 seconds. And finally, when you've done describing all of the sounds and the smells and the da da da, what do you do? And there's this pause. And your players, and it's your first time, and your players are, are not saying anything and they're just sort of waiting. Don't feel compelled to fill the space. Let that space just sit. And you say, what do you do? You know, and, and don't maybe be afraid to repeat it. Sits there and you go, do you, what do you do? You know, after, after a minute, they, they'll figure it out. They have to figure out some group dynamics them for themselves too, right? Yeah. So part of the responsibility of the DM, you set, you frame the, the situation, you toss it to them as part of this loop and then they have to figure out how they're going to resolve it. And exactly. as the, if you, if you find that this is a group that you're playing with regularly, they will fall into patterns. They'll create norms. You usually have a player or two who will take action more readily than right. others. They'll figure it out. But for your first game, when you ask this, you know, remember it's new for everybody. And even if you have experienced players at the table, it's new for them having you as their DM. So they don't yet know they're riffing off of you too, you know? Yeah. That's to, a good point is they're adjusting to a new DM as well. So right. they're, you know, they might play a little differently or... The way to see, like... Kind of see what what can I do, what can I get away with, Even if or, it's the same players, the player dynamic is different, right? Like Billy, when he runs the game, well, okay, we all know how he responds. When, when Billy says, what do you do? You know, oh, Jim is always first to say whatever. Uh, but now Sally is running the game, and Jim is playing a different character. Billy is also a character. Is Billy going to be the first? You know, like, yeah. just... I'm I'm very different as a player than I am as a DM. Me too. Me and too. It, it's it's funny because I, I I wouldn't have expected it, but the more that I I play both roles and I examine them, I laugh to myself because I don't think I'm a player that I would want in my own game. <laughs> I wondered this myself, you know. I, I I think that I I probably. Oh man, that's a. I, I get upset when people are doing unoptimal things. I, I have to like hold my tongue a lot. It's tough. It's we, tough we, being a PC. We're going to have to talk about that next, I think, because that's a, that's a whole can of worms I haven't actually thought very much about. Like, would I want to be a player in my own game? And part of that is because I've spent a lot of time running the game as opposed to playing characters. But uh, I, I do think back about the differences. You know, it really is a different game that you're playing as the it's DM. It's a t- totally a, different experience. And it's, it's part of the beauty of the game is that, like, you can play these two compatible, separate related interrelated games at a table together yeah i love it uh so but uh no also i guess just um the last thing about this is that uh in many about other things to do to pay attention to while you're running the game in many games in this space today there is a movement for what they call gm-less games where this big risky task that you've stepped up and decided to do to run a game, the game is structured, these other games are structured such that this role doesn't exist. It's a shared process. Or some of the responsibilities are disclaimed from that role. Right. And it, maybe they're, it exists in a lesser form. They're they're farmed out to the other players or delegated over here or whatever it looks like. And I say this specifically because it, it's all a game. This is why I harped on fun earlier. So we should all be having fun. And we're making it all up. It's make-believe game. So in this loop of... Even in those games, you know, where one person has the the camera or the scene or the spotlight at any given moment, it's the same sort of loop, right? Mm-hmm. Describing what goes on and then waiting for other player exactly. interaction. Know, too, that as the DM in D&D, which is very traditional in this regard, you have the power to change the dynamic of what that looks like. You're the one who gets to say who can say stuff. And you can empower players to run stuff, too. So another trick that I've often done with people I don't know 
or how the game is new people at the table is if I'm the DM, I'll say you walk into a tavern and Joe, why don't you tell us what's in the tavern? Especially for an experienced player at your table. Exactly. And for some new players, it can like freak them out a little bit. But being able to disclaim some narrative responsibility or an NPC or description to certain players can, one, make your job a lot easier as Mm -hmm. a new player. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a really experienced player that you can trust, you know, maybe they can run that NPC in combat for you and not do something stupid. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can run initiative for you. You know, don't be afraid to throw like, okay, like Skylar just said, what does this room look like? What do you notice the most? And, you know, doing that within certain, like, safe boundaries can be really helpful and take a little bit of, you know, the pressure off of you. Though it can also be a slippery slope depending on who you're giving agency to and how much. Right. I would say, you know, you're probably going to have some experienced player at your table if you're running it for the first time because you would have to have encountered it with somebody. But uh, know your table. Always know your table. Know who would be interested in that. Ask for permission. Don't just toss it on them because they'll be like, yeah. no. <laughs> remember, remember, the thing to remember here is that RPGs are really a conversation, right? It, it's it's a game, but at its its heart, it's really a conversation between players, between players in the GM. And the thing to understand is different games lie in different parts on that spectrum. When we look at Dungeons and Dragons, it's almost more like you are leading a class of people, right? Like you're in a more kind of a slightly more authoritative position, Whereas if we look at things like Dungeon World, similar, but there's a little bit more player agency. And if we keep sliding down to things like Blades in the Dark or completely GMless systems, we see it truly become more of a back and forth conversation mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. players in the group as a whole have more the same or just as much agency as the DM might in certain situations, which is, is it's really interesting is to remember that, you know, different games are going to be at a different place on that spectrum of conversation. Some games may be more one-sided than others, and that's okay. You'll find certain, you know, aspects of that you like and you don't like. In classic Battletech, the conversation is done at the end of a muzzle of an autocannon. And a laser. <laughs> That's where the conversation is. As I as I blow off your right arm, you DM, GM, enemy, whatever. But yeah, the, 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 when we're talking about conversations too, the ones that can be tricky to navigate as a new DM are the conversations following the game. Because you just went from being a player who maybe walks out with the other players and you chat in the parking lot before you go home about... The story, right? Remember, the narrative is what happens in the game. The story is what we tell each other later. Mm -hmm. The narrative and the story are different aspects. And all of a sudden, now you're the GM. You're not going to get the same maybe honest feedback or criticisms you used to hear from player to player. It's just, you know, that may not be the case. And it could be a better thing for you sometimes. Maybe you don't, you're not ready to hear that as a new GM because not all players are GMs. It's really important to understand that. It doesn't, and that means a lot of them are not going to be capable of offering constructive criticism because they can't see things from your side of the table from your perspective. Right. Right. They're, they just, if they haven't GM before, they, they really don't understand what you're going through. They may know like, oh, that NPC sucked or I hated that combat, but they don't know, you know, they're not going to understand why that happened. Yeah. I mean, like, and not every player is the right person for every game either or DM. And that's even for each edition of a game, you know? So, there's, for instance, one player that we both know that I've played with that uh, will play in most any kind of game, but when running a game, only uses fourth edition. Which, you know, that's just what that person is comfortable with. So it's like, you know, the, the kind of feedback they're going to give you about a game is very different than the kind of feedback you might be normally expecting. Uh, it depends, yeah. you know. So, like, you, you have to understand that, like, 
everybody who shows at your table has their own biases too, right? And and they're all gonna and that's based on other games they've played. Is it like a video game that I know? Is it like uh, is it like an escape room game? You know, depending on what their preconceived notion of the game is before they arrive, right? So. I guess uh, having that conversation about feedback, it really depends. This is, again, know your table. Um, I, I have always found it to be better one-on-one. You know, like, you know the people. You talked to them. You got them involved in the game, probably. You may have invited them, you know. And so, like, you're probably talking to these people regularly. Yeah. And uh, hope, hopefully talking about the game regularly. Yeah, I mean, it's nice if you have another experienced GM in the group who can maybe give you a helpful tip or two. But here's mm-hmm. the thing. When you're GMing for these first couple sessions, it's going to be a whirlwind of activity. <laughs> Even though right. the game might feel like it's going slow sometimes, it may not feel like that on your side of the screen. And you may actually just struggle to implement their advice or remember it in the moment because you're you're holding you're juggling so many plates. So the it can be tricky asking for this feedback. And like you said, in a group situation, people are probably not going to be truly honest and give you what's useful feedback. And sometimes, you know, that feedback might be too honest and crush your confidence a little bit. <laughs> it can it can definitely happen because it's your first game. Parts of it probably sucked, you know, and a, 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 as an experienced player, you know, I may have had fun and enjoyed it. But if you want me to get truly objective and critical, oh, I can. I can tell you the things I hate about everything that I love. That's just <laughs> how I am. That's like I made a profession out of this. Like I can love something to pieces and tell you, what sucks about it? I and think I'm just that way. The the core of it is that you want the you want you want to run hopefully the next game, and you want the players to come back for another yeah, game. Yeah, if they right? show up for your next game, that's probably the best feedback you're gonna get. Right. You didn't screw the pooch. Right. Like they're back. You can keep running. I will say uh, one cool tip I've seen from other DMs is they'll wait a day or two, and they will send out an anonymous survey to their players to try and just kind of get you know the anonymity. Like if you know your players, you'll kind of know who wrote what, but that can just knowing that there's that that can help them. It's maybe a safe give you, way to do it. It's a safe way to do it. If you're did you like the combat if, or not? If you're ready for that criticism, right? Did you like a character and or not? Here's the thing: as a new DM, I don't think this criticism is very helpful. This feedback's not useful because you're still you're just trying to get your shit together. Like maybe it's just a simple mistake that you made, and you're actually really good at that thing that they think you're bad at. You just prepped wrong. You know, so I say that happens sometimes. Like, don't worry about the feedback, honestly, till you get to the end of this thing. Finish all three or five sessions. Talk to your players. Be like, okay, now that we got through that, do you guys want to run a campaign like this? Or And start pitching them some ideas. Yeah, I, I think that the, at the end and, of a module you know, is the best way to do that. At the exactly. end of the adventure, right? So you how say, did this go? What did, did we Did you like think? it? Did, did you, were there villains that you didn't like yeah, that you did? Did you feel challenged? Did you not feel challenged? You know, and But yes, definitely. And and I think that the best way to get feedback really is to keep running the game. Keep running keep the game. Keep running it. And then, you know, you, you may sometimes have a player who's like, yeah... I'm not out. I'm not in this time. Yeah. And you're like, well, next time you see a person, so you you weren't you stopped coming. Like, why did you stop coming? Yeah, well, you know, there wasn't enough fighting for me, or there was too much fighting for me, or um, I just got busy and um, I can't set aside and, four hours. You know, and that's the thing. You you can't take it personally. Like, if you're running a wacky, Absolutely. like maybe you're running a super wacky pirate game, and they're just your players like these, like just not my jam. Like, or you threw them into the underdark where yeah. the world is kind of grim. Yeah, and that's fine. Don't try not to take it personally it's really important to understand that as working adults we all have very limited time to play games like if you actually map out how much time you have to play games for the rest of your life you will be sad so don't do that <laughs> um it's, it's so much more limited than you think it, it really is so i it's a big thing that i think you should 
spend the time playing games you really enjoy. And if it's a group of people that you can trust, like they will understand if you say, hey, you know, like this, the game you ran was great. Uh, I just, I'm really not into 4E, you know, it's just not mm-hmm. my jam. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like... Or I, Warhammer yeah, Fantasy just, in I'm my case. I'm just not into it, you know, and I only have these four hours to game each week. Right. You know, so I'm going to try something else. But, you know, if you end up switching, like, keep me in the loop. I, I would love to come back. So don't take it too personally, you know. If uh, someone, you get a lot of clout from putting yourself out there to be yeah, a DM in the first place. Any, Anybody any to run cool, a game. Any cool player will respect you for Absolutely. putting yourself out there and trying to run a game. Absolutely. Anyone who's DM'd before knows what it's like being behind the screen Absolutely. And, and how crazy it can feel even though the game's moving at a snail's pace so when you finish that limited run of sessions that's where you're going to get the most useful feedback and it's going to come from yourself it's not going to come from an external source it's going to be did you enjoy this jamming thing do you want to do more of it maybe you need to do more of it <laughs> that's myself how did it go right <laughs> so and and if, if the bugs bit you you'll know because you you won't be able to turn it off it will be there in your brain constantly. <laughs> You'll find times in the moments when you're waiting on mass transit or washing your hair. Or when you or should be working at work. When you are definitely, quote, working at work, and definitely not, typing loudly, totally not researching different character options for my players. Of course not. <laughs> totally not researching different villains that will kill them. Totally not researching ways that I can map out their inevitable demise. Important business stuff. <laughs> I'm clearly but earning yes. my living. <laughs> so hopefully you got something useful from our blathering over the... And hopefully one day there's an opportunity that you have to come and run a game for us. I think that that would be a delightful, maybe at a convention or Comic-Con or something, who knows. We'll see. But uh, if we at all inspired you to take up this game and give it a shot and it sticks, then... Our uh, job is done. Our job is if done. We, if we got one person And I would be delighted at some point games. down the road for you to run a game somewhere, somehow. Don't you stalk me, though. I'm not into that. Honestly, if we get one, one or two people to run <laughs> games from this podcast, we've done our job. Absolutely. It's worth it. So go out there, run games. You're great. You can do it. Until next time. Over and out. Over and out.